0: Hey there, Haskell Weekly listeners, welcome to another episode of the Haskell Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Fossack. I am the Director of Software Engineering at ACI Learning. And I'm Cameron Guerra. Um,
1: I am a Senior Software Engineer at Caribou, which is a fantastic place to be and uh, no longer IT pro, but it's okay. We're still doing the podcast here and uh,
0: excited to be here today. How's it going today? It's going good. Glad to be back on a new episode with you, Cam. We took a few weeks off there around Thanksgiving, but things are going well. Yeah, it seems like we do that. We get like two weeks pretty good in a row, and then all of a sudden it's like two, three
1: weeks. We're like, oh yeah, nope, hasn't happened. So uh, we got the holidays coming up as well, so we'll see how uh, the rest of this uh, time goes for the rest of this year. Yeah, I think
0: in retrospect, calling it Haskell Weekly was a mistake on my part. It should have been haskell semi-weekly haskell sometimes (laughs) Mm -hmm. but yeah um so yeah we'll be probably off a little bit around the holidays so prepare yourself for that uh but this week we're going to be reviewing the haskell survey results um i published the survey results just after they the survey closed which was uh in the first half of november but uh, we haven't got a chance to go over them here on the podcast so i figured we'd do that today
1: yeah yeah i think it's uh got some fascinating insights um you know this year it was actually lower response than previous uh, and i'm also a guilty party for not actually have done it so uh whoops it's uh you know we have a little over 1100 responses um, which is just a few hundred down from last year so um uh, you know a little less uh participation but still great uh fascinations yeah. yeah, to make some and, rhymes here.
0: <laughs> I'm not too concerned about the dip in participation this year. It doesn't portend anything to me. I think it just waxes and wanes, and we've had it go up a little bit, and now it's gone back down. Um, also, before we get into looking at the results, um, the Haskell Foundation is actually hiring a data scientist to comb through these and provide some better. I would say second or third level, you know, analysis of these things. So rather than looking at one question in isolation, looking at some types of things, like if they answered one question this way, how does that impact their, the way they answered these other questions? Hmm. And in particular, that could be really useful, um, by splitting people up based on their experience level or, you know, any number of facets like that.
1: Dang, that's pretty cool. And, and this next year is going to be probably something the Haskell foundation runs, correct?
0: I think so. That's my goal is to hand off this survey. I've done it for five years now and I have got it down to the point where I don't have to spend a lot of time doing it, but that means also that I'm not really actively working on continually improving it. You know, I'll make little changes and tweaks here and there, but for the most part, I just ask the same questions every year and post the same, um, results format in the same way. Right. Cool.
1: Yeah. So, uh, I guess with that, we can get started. What's, uh, What was one of the first things that kind of caught you by surprise?
0: Something that caught me by surprise that wasn't necessarily new this year, but that I want to call out and just appreciate is there were a good chunk of people who took the survey who don't currently use Haskell. And that's both people that used it in the past and don't anymore, or people that have never used it. And I'm really curious how those people that never used it ended up taking this survey, but I appreciate their viewpoint. And I also appreciate the viewpoint of people who used it in the past and kind of either left it for whatever reason or gave up on it or whatever it is. Um, those are really valuable viewpoints. So I just want to thank the people that have done that and who, you know, I wouldn't expect them to be listeners of the, of the podcast, but maybe they are. Yeah.
1: Maybe they're just dreaming to get into Haskell more, uh, you know, and providing their feedback, whether they don't have any experience or if they, you know, have had experience in the past and it's, they left for some reason. Um, uh, so yeah, I think that's been pretty interesting. Um, you know, I think looking at the breakdown, obviously there's a lot of variation in in the demographic that we that are filling this out, um, whether it's experience or it's um, you know kind of frequency or or the reason to use Haskell or you know how what be it. Um, but I, I did also like that the fact that like you know tying into your people who used to use Haskell or may not even use Haskell and filling this out. Like, the the question about, do you use Haskell at work? Like 36, 33, yeah, 36% of the people who answered the question were like, no, but I'd like to, you know, which is more than the yes, most of the time, you know? Uh, so that was kind of interesting.
0: Um, yeah, that's huge. And I really wish I had an answer for those people of like, how can you use Haskell at work you know is it a problem with Haskell is it a problem with the company or is it not really a problem at all it's just the way the chips fell um that would be an interesting thing to dig into and get some qualitative answers from those people rather than the quantitative numbers
1: yeah and I think too that like yeah it's that barrier of entry is it is that too high um you know is there something like my my recommendation for those people would be like just see if there's some way to have a a spike of a Haskell project, and kind of show the power. I think that's something here at Caribou we've done is that we've kind of showed how powerful you know Haskell can be for both like speed and you know consistency and, and performance and all these things. And so we've really created a nice kind of we, we've advocated well for that language in our job by just kind of starting with little things and seeing the payoff there. So you know that would give me my recommendation to those who would like to, is just say like, Hey, you know, you guys have a company hackathon or something comes up and you're like, Hey, let me, can I, can I try this with Haskell and just see, um, you know, and I feel like there's a lot of resources out there too, for, you know, higher ups who you're trying to convince you can work with them kind of say, Hey, okay. Hey, here's, here's the parameters for success. And you know, we're going to try to you know spend a month on this, you know, and hopefully with that month you have the opportunity to kind of really expand um, your knowledge and the company's knowledge of Haskell and uh, you know, create a great product out of it as well.
0: I agree. I think that's great advice, and it's worth reiterating, or maybe not even reiterating. Just if you weren't aware, with ACI Learning, which um, I came from the IT Pro TV side of ACI Learning, and IT Pro TV wasn't always a Haskell shop. It actually started as a WordPress site, so PHP, and then had a not-too-brief stint as a Node.js shop using SalesJS, and very briefly used Golang, and then got over to Haskell. So I think people may have this impression that in order to use Haskell at a company, it has to be founded by somebody who's really... Gung ho about using Haskell, and that's not the case. It wasn't the case for us.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I'm currently in a, a place where we're a Ruby and TypeScript shop, so it's kind of like you know pushing our way through. Um, and you know, we have a lot of people in the organization who are interested in what we're doing on our team, um, since that's where our, our Haskell is currently. But we're gonna you know continue to do book clubs and things like that to spread Haskell through the rest of the organization. And we're hoping that as we're kind of going to a microservice architecture as it is because they kind of got their wires crossed. And, uh, you know, when when you're in a startup, you're you're trying to get a product out there. So there's choices made that kind of create a lot of coupling and and things. So I know we're trying to spend some time to clean that up and then ideally pull some of that, you know, those things out into maybe services. And you know, there's, there's an opportunity there to also use Haskell, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's one of the benefits of microservices is that you can have, a small piece of your infrastructure written in a different language and uh just try it out see how it works Mm -hmm. yep so moving on a little bit uh one of the other questions that's interesting to me i don't know if i'd call it surprising is the how many years have you been using haskell and i i guess i was surprised to see that a lot of people that answered this survey had been using haskell for less than two years which means there's a big group of people that are really new to haskell and for me, as someone who's been using it for several years, like on in the five to 10 range at this point, it's easy to forget what it felt like to be, you know, in year one of learning Haskell. And I think so much of the um, material in the community, blog posts and stuff like that, caters to those experts, the people who have been using it forever and really wanna push it to its limits. Mm-hmm. But it's important to remember a big chunk of the community is new and just needs help with the basics and, you know, comparative analysis how how do you do something and how do you choose which way to do something how do you choose a library all those things are challenging and there there isn't a lot of material written for that
1: yeah yeah and i think i mean i would have the same questions and i'm you know almost at the three-year mark so it's kind of that like finding the resources that give the beginner a chance um and, and that's kind of you know I think if you're going into an organization that has Haskell, a lot of, I mean, I I think it depends on what they're doing, but you can kind of find a niche of simple Haskell and kind of keep to that, so that as you're bringing on new hires and you're bringing in interns or whoever they may be, they have a little easier handhold into Haskell because it's not, you know, crazy bind syntax that you're, you know, trying to figure out. Okay, this applicatives to this and what and left bind and arrow starship oh my goodness you know there's a lot of you know operators in haskell that can create confusion and there's also i mean i I feel like that's in any language you can write things to be confusing so um, choosing to kind of fight for simple haskell is going to help those beginners you know really feel confident in in the language and, and probably take that next step of okay now i understand the basics what do i need to do to get to the next level. I gotta be a 10 X developer. Yo.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think even simple Haskell is already a much more powerful and expressive language than many other programming languages that you would do well, just sticking to that. And yeah, there's going to be edge cases here and there that you can't, that feel like they should be able to be prevented, uh, like from the type level to turn them into compiler errors, but the price you'd have to pay to turn them into compiler errors is pretty high. So just deal with the runtime error or potential runtime error and keep the code simple for a while. And then eventually you and your team will have enough experience to be able to say, are we comfortable um, increasing the complexity in order to also increase the safety or the guarantees we get from the code?
1: Right. Take advantage of some of those deeper things. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, which is the uh, next question that stood out to you, Cam? Um.
1: Yeah. Well, I was just looking through and kind of perusing here, but uh, it's interesting to me that sixty-two percent of the you know participants answered that you know they develop command line programs with Haskell. Uh, that was kind of interesting to me. I mean, I definitely can see why it would be that way. I was just expecting API services to kind of run the roost there, but you know, everybody's got, you know, different ways of, of using it. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, have you, like, I know you've done some stuff with kind of CLI and Haskell, um, with your rocket league parser, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, and I'm in the same boat as you, my, you know, I programmed API services for most of my professional career. And so that's my bias and that's what I expected to see at the top of the list here. But, um, I think command line programs are probably the least common denominator. Like, even though I typically write API services, I also write command line programs. And if you write libraries, you'll, you'll also probably write some command line programs, so it's like everything else involves some manner of that. So that's probably why it's up at the top. Um, but as to like my experience writing command line programs with Haskell, I found it to be a very nice programming language for it and it, you know, works well and gets out of your way um i'm not sure what else to say about it like there, there are good libraries for parsing command line arguments um opt parse applicative or opt parse generic are both pretty good uh and there's actually a module built into the base library that's just a re-implementation of git opt which is a common c or c++ way to parse command line flags and it's not very like um advanced or nice to use but it gets the job done so if you're trying to avoid dependencies for whatever reason there is something in base that can let you do that Hmm. nice Um, yeah what what was the uh, the next question
1: that kind of stood out to you yeah
0: i'm still looking around um there's a couple that are not surprising but i want to highlight which are that most people develop on linux and most people Deploy to Linux. So that's been true every year I've done this, and I suspect it will continue to be true for a long time. But um, one thing I've said before about this that was probably a little controversial is that if you're trying to build some tooling for Haskell and you feel like you may not be able to make headway or support all three major operating systems, Linux, Mac, and Windows, at the same time just build it for Linux at first and then if it catches on and the community seems to like it yeah go ahead and also make it work on Mac and Windows but don't feel obligated to do that out of the gate because you're going to hit almost I don't know 80% so 4 out of 5 Haskell developers you'll hit with just getting Linux mm-hmm.
1: yeah. yeah I think that's definitely something that's pretty cool uh, yeah the next one I wanted to dive into if you're okay with jumping into it is the language extensions which ones people would like enabled by default, and lo and behold, our uh, our lambda case is up at the top, which is interesting to me. <laughs> I mean, I guess why it's,
0: is that interesting?
1: It's just because it's something I've never really used or try to use uh, because it's I don't know. Seems like it can create a little more confusion and chaos than it's worth. But mm-hmm. uh you know, I know there's obviously use cases for it. It's just interesting that that was like the one that most people wanted uh, instead of, you know, enabled instead of disabled. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: Yeah. I I have an opinion about Lambda case, but before I launch into it, um, a quick note, if you're listening to this and you go look at the results on the website, because there will be a link in the show notes, um, I want to explain briefly the visualization here because I had a question about it. So... Uh, with all of the other questions, it was just like a bar chart for who, how many responses did I get for each answer choice? In this one, there are kind of two bar charts at once, uh, because for each question uh, or for each language extension, people were able to select, yes, I want this enabled by default or no, I don't want to, I I don't want this enabled by default, or I would resist a proposal to enable this by default. And that lets us say, okay, like Lambda case, um, we had a lot of votes in favor of enabling it by default and almost no votes opposed to enabling it by default. So that means it's widely, uh, a lot of people like it and not too many people dislike it. So if you go look at these results online, that's what the two bars mean. The blue one means yes and the orange one means no. Gotcha. So with that caveat out of the way, Lambda case, um, I, I feel like I see why so many people voted for this. It's just a pure syntactic sugar thing that lets you write expressions that are more or less unambiguous and avoid naming variables. Um, But I personally dislike it because I feel like it complicates the grammar for such a small benefit. Like To me, the downside of writing backslash x arrow case x of I have no, um, desire to replace that with backslash case. Like, okay, I saved a couple of keystrokes, but it doesn't really change anything. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And uh, yeah, I haven't had, I haven't used it in anchor, so I wouldn't know if I would like it or not. Um, I think my opinion on that has been probably, based on your opinion of that as well just because it's you know i was you know we worked together for so long it was kind of like yeah yeah no yeah, lambda case isn't really worth it kind of thing so that's probably where my opinion comes in uh, but i'm also the advocate for simple haskell so like i feel like for the benefits it just doesn't out like it doesn't it's not worth it in my opinion right
0: but, Because you have to teach people, okay, well, there's this whole separate syntax now for when you have a Lambda that has one argument and you're just casing on that argument, you can get rid of all this stuff around it. And I feel like it's simpler to just say, if you don't care what the name of this argument is, just put an X in there and move on with your life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like this kind of goes with the Haskell community's overall dislike of naming arguments. So there's a lot of you know, writing stuff in point-free syntax lets you avoid naming arguments, um, currying or partially applying functions lets you avoid naming arguments. And I think those are all all right, but I try not to take them to the extreme. Yeah. Simplify everything point-free. No, Nothing is variables. Mm-hmm. It's all, <laughs> you have one input to the system and then everything else is just point-free. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, So one of the extensions that stood out to me was a little further down the list, which is applicative do. It's a relatively new extension where if you write a expression in do notation, but you don't actually use any features that would require a monad, it will infer an applicative constraint to that thing and rewrite it using the applicative operators, which are pure and um, people call it all kinds of different things, spaceship or TIE fighter or Uh, less than asterisk greater than anyway um that's what applicative do does and i wanted to highlight it because it's one of the few language extensions that was really really contentious there were a lot of votes to enable it by default but also a lot of votes not to enable it by default and i don't really know why that is do you game
1: i don't um unless people are are more focused on yeah I, i mean i honestly have no idea uh So can, can you kind of talk about like, yeah, I guess for me, I'm haven't really, I didn't even know this was really a language extension. So, you know, how cool I am. Um, but yeah, what, what would be like a big downside to this?
0: I'm not well versed in the downsides of applicative do I think probably, and this is true with many language extensions probably um, error messages get worse if you have this turned on and you do something wrong because the implied constraint will be different than what you might expect. Um, Also, I think I have a memory, so this could be wrong, but I have a memory of when this was first rolled out that it was buggy in certain circumstances. So like it wasn't generally safe to enable applicative do for an entire project because something may suddenly behave differently. Um, and maybe that's why, or even, uh, if your oper- or if your constraint is something that's a monad, but it relaxes it down to an applicative, that means things may happen in parallel when it looks like they should happen in sequence, because if your monad doesn't, um, use the result of a previous binding, then applicative do will infer that those things can be done you know, they don't really depend on each other, so they could be done at the same time or one before the other, whatever. And that may break programs that do depend on that um, specific ordering of stuff. Gotcha.
1: Cool. Yeah, No. I mean, I feel like that's some valid concerns for, for people. I mean, so it makes sense that it would be such a tight race. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I know... I mean, we've talked about GHC twenty twenty one many times on this podcast, um, which is just a, for those who haven't, who don't know, it's a default set of language extensions that are going to ship with the language, uh, kind of like Haskell twenty ten and was it Haskell ninety six or 98, 98 was 98. the first one. Yeah, so you know that that's like a preset, and you know on here we didn't like you know, mark that whether it's part of it or not. Um, but, yeah, I think it was kind of interesting that, like, maybe the maybe the committee who kind of decided what Haskell 2021 has, they take a look at this. And if it has any, like, correlation, like, okay, yeah, we see a majority of people want tuple sections. All right. Well, then we're going to maybe we'll consider that or maybe it's already in there. So, uh, yeah.
0: And, in fact, they did look at it last year, as they were compiling the extension set for GHC 2021, this wasn't the only thing in the mix, but this was one data point. Uh, and they also took a look at packages on hackage to see which language extensions they enabled by default and which ones were enabled w- within modules, uh, explicitly. So, um, yeah, you're, The people who responded to this survey, your voice was heard and it got incorporated into GHC 2021. And hopefully this will get incorporated into future versions of the Haskell language. It's not a standard now because that's not what GHC 2021 is, but like extension set. I don't know what to call it exactly.
1: Yeah, like uh, just kind of like a prepackaged situation. Mm -hmm. So it's like like you ordered it on Amazon and
0: now (laughs) it's at your front door in two days. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we could talk about language extensions all day, but do you want to move on to another another question? Yeah. Um, you know, I think one that probably gets
1: a lot of conversation in the Haskell community is probably, I mean, I think there's a, quite a few, but I think one that is pretty common is probably tooling. It's like mm-hmm. the question around tooling. And um, I think in 2021, we had a huge kind of swing uh, towards like, some better tooling um and that being in hls haskell language server i think that has really you know taken off i think you know early in the year in 2020 as well it was you know too buggy there's some issues with it and so you know i think in 2021 it's really solidified as for me my go-to ide um you know and and i'll use ghcid or i'll use just stack um sometimes, but really if I'm trying to iterate quickly, HLS is, you know, where I'm at. It's my bread and butter.
0: Yeah, I agree. It is both an amazing project and it has improved so much, even just in the past year. I feel like it's gained so many features and it's gotten much faster. So if you've looked at it before and had trouble with it, take another look, but most people have looked at it. Almost 65% of people that responded to the survey, at least use hls and that's huge
1: yeah and i think too it's funny that like uh you know adam you know i don't know what four four years ago five years ago was like one of the top editors in general and now you know it's just two percent of people yeah and i I think think.
0: all those people switched over to vs code which is now the most popular one beating out both vi and emacs so yeah yeah better not tell jason or (laughs) cody And uh, another big upset this year was that Cabal overtook stack as the most popular build tool, (gasps) and I think there were two big reasons for this. One is that Cabal improved quite a bit, and with the newer versions of the Cabal spec and Cabal library and Cabal install command line tool, they've gotten a lot of nice new features, Um, but also I think the GHC up project helped with this because if you use GHC up that can manage your GHC installation and then also install cabal for you. And then you're ready to go. Um, and for me, that was one of the big upsides of stack was that it managed GHC for me and just dropped me in an environment that was ready to build stuff. And now I usually reach for GHC up and cabal rather than stack. So that's been a big change for me uh, at work. We still use stack. So I'm still very comfortably switching between them, but for personal projects, I've tried it out and I liked it. So I'm sticking with it. Hmm. Nice.
1: Yeah. I have not looked into GHC up, so I'll have to check it out. We use stack, uh, with templates. So we have a stack template that we generally build all of our Haskell projects with. Um, oh, cool. So that's been pretty nice, especially for microservice architecture, which kind of get the skeleton up and then we can, uh, iterate from there.
0: Yeah. One of the most popular things I've ever worked on in the Haskell community is a stack template for setting up a new project that I called Haskeleton. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if it's still a stack template. I haven't worked on it in a while, but yeah. It's funny. a skeleton.
1: We're, we're, they're very, uh, I feel like the Haskell community is very fun, good at uh, naming. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Hackle or Haskell. Hackle? Well. The blog? H-A-S-Q-L. Oh,
0: H-A-S-Q-L. Yeah. I never know how to pronounce that one. Haskell. (laughs) It's a great name, but I don't know how to say it out loud. Yeah. It's always fun. It's like, makes it really easy to talk about. Just kidding. Mm -hmm. Um, So related to tooling, another one of the things that really surprised me this year and every year is I ask, which tools do you use to deploy Haskell applications? And many, many people say that they deploy static binaries, but I'm not sure I believe them. It's really hard to build a fully static binary for Haskell, and I think people are deploying mostly static binaries, so I don't know if that's a distinction worth making, but that surprised me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from my my experience, it's been Docker images all the way.
0: Yeah. And those are very popular as well, but um, I'm curious, like when people say static binaries, are they... Building inside of Alpine and statically linking glibc or not glibc but muscle libc, or are they statically linking everything except libc? I'd be really curious to dig into that one. Yeah,
1: so if anybody answered that and has uh, an example, you want to be on the podcast, please reach out. We'd love to have,
0: and you know, maybe they really are doing static binaries because a good chunk of people use Nix and so Nix can produce a static binary, so maybe that's how they're doing it. Yeah
1: still could be a fun uh episode to dive into
0: mm-hmm.
1: um cool well that was kind of a touch on infrastructure as well um is there I mean, we've got kind of community as a section section here in in the um results on well, the survey and mm-hmm. um you know i think one that's always interesting every year is the which of the following topics would you like to see written more yes you know, because it's always like okay like what what could it be because that's you know luckily it's a multi-select because everybody has opinions on what they want to see more of um and what i'm surprised about those is really low that people are like eh, it would be game development i feel like it could be kind of fun to figure out if that's like a viable possibility using game de- you know having game development
0: yeah I, I mean i think it would be fun but also what's the you know the Venn diagram of people that are Haskell Haskell developers and game developers is probably pretty small. And that's actually one of the things I like about this question is that I think it gets to the heart of often people will write about things that are interesting to them, which is good because it's easy to be jazzed up about that and write something good about it. But um, I think it'd be better to direct or, or maybe like even pay for articles that focus on these things that people in the community want. So like best practices is far in a way the most popular thing that people wish there were things written about. So why, why doesn't anybody write about them or why do we not write enough about them? I guess would be the better question.
1: Yeah. The hard thing I feel like with best practices is it's all opinion based, mm-hmm. but hopefully, you know, with the Haskell foundation and the committee there and the team, it'd be nice to see if something from that foundation could kind of help lead the charge in the best practices movement and then you know kind of keep a a series of of blog posts or you know video series or something to kind of illustrate you know as a whole like what's the haskell foundation think about these things Uh, yeah
0: i think best practices are inherently subjective so it doesn't bother me too much that you know they're it best practices may change or may depend on who you ask but i still think it'd be really valuable and you know i'm guilty of this as well i run a team of Haskell developers and we haven't written much about what we do or why we do it, but, uh, we probably should. And maybe I'll try to make that a focus in the coming year.
1: Maybe so we'll have to keep, we can make Haskell weekly podcast, a uh, accountability partner to that.
0: <laughs> yes. I like it. Yeah. Um, so the next big section of the survey results were for feelings. And I feel like, uh, these haven't changed too much year over year. And the only thing I want to point out is that overall, when they're presented here in the survey results, uh, they're sorted. So the ones that are most positive or that most people agree with are toward the top. And then the ones that people mostly disagree with are at the bottom. So as you scroll through, things get more and more bleak. And then you get down to the bottom and it's like, oh, I can find Haskell jobs and I can reason about the performance of my Haskell code. those are the things people disagree with the most.
1: Yeah, well, uh, I mean, if you're interested in a Haskell job, caribou's hiring so and as this so is aci learning so you know there's haskell jobs out there if you, if you want you know hit us up
0: yeah please do all right cam was there anything else in the survey results you wanted to talk about
1: um i don't think so i mean i think this survey is really cool i mean and i thank you for kind of putting it all together and kind of you know keeping it organized and you know re- displaying results i think that's a big testament to like to just how, how much impact you have on the Haskell community. And we appreciate that. Uh, um, thanks. You know, I appreciate it. It's nice to have someone who's willing to kind of take that on. Um, and for you to spearhead it for five years is impressive, uh, needless to say. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think I have anything else on the survey. Do you have anything else you wanted to share?
0: No, that was it. And uh, again, thanks for the kind words. I enjoy running the survey, but I will also enjoy handing it off to the Haskell Foundation if they want to pick it up. And the secret to doing something like this from my point of view is automate as much as you can, because that's what lets you do it over and over again. Yep, yeah. Sounds like uh, a good programmer's motto. motto. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Yeah. All right, well, I think that'll do it for us this week. Is that right? Yeah, that'll, that'll be it,
1: yeah. Thank you all for listening to the Haskell weekly podcast. Uh, I, Cameron Guerra and Taylor have been your hosts. Um, and if you are curious about where you can find Haskell weekly, just check out our website at Haskell dot news. Um, and also sign up for the weekly newsletter and you can hear more about the articles we're talking about. Um, uh, As my dog is running into this room. So,
0: um, your dog's so excited, wants to sign up for the newsletter. Yeah, ready. So, um, but yeah, toss it over to you. And this week, as every week, we are brought to you by my employer, ACI Learning. If you'd like to get started in IT training, head over to itpro.tv and use promo code HaskellWeekly30 to get 30% off the lifetime of your subscription. That's itpro.tv promo code haskell weekly 30 awesome uh, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week peace